You are listening to the First Baptist Church Martin podcast. For more information on our church, visit fbcmartin.org. If you got your Bible this morning, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians and find chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are working our way through this New Testament letter that we now know, of course, is 1 Corinthians. We're in the third chapter. We have been for the last couple of weeks. This morning, Lord willing, we will finish chapter 3, and then next week we'll move on to chapter 4. Now, just in case you may be new to First Baptist or you've been away and this is your first time back uh, in a while, we just kind of catch you up as to where we are in this letter. In chapter 3, Paul has dealt with the division within this church. In fact, he has done that in the first three chapters of this letter. But he reminds them in chapter 3 that God's ministers, God's servants, those that he has uh, commissioned and called to help lead the church in the building of the church, that they're not working against each other, that, that, that uh, no minister is called to generate their own fan base or create their own following, but rather we are to call people to faith in Christ and that we're to lay the foundation of Jesus Christ, of faith in Christ in their lives because that is the foundation of the church. And so he talks about in chapter 3 how uh, one had come along and had planted the seed, others had come along and watered the seed, but ultimately it's God who gives the increase, it's God who brings people to himself, it's God who gives the gift of salvation. And then when people come to faith in Christ, the foundation has been laid, the foundation of faith in a person's life, the foundation of the church is the confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Son of God, he is the one sent from God into this world to die on the cross for our sins. He was raised up from the dead so that by faith in him we could be forgiven, reconciled to God, and have the hope and the promise of eternal life. That is the foundation of the church. And he says, so we've laid the foundation now. It's up to others now to come along and build on that. And when he speaks of others, he's talking about other ministers, other ministers who had been present in this church at Corinth, how they had come behind Paul. He had laid the foundation by preaching the gospel. People had come to faith in Christ. A church had been started. Now others had come behind him and are building on that foundation by teaching and preaching the word of God, uh, teaching them how to follow Jesus Christ, how to live out their faith practically in this world. But Paul reminds us that all of us, in a sense, are responsible for building on that foundation. Each one of us is responsible for building on the foundation of Jesus Christ in our own life. And at the end of life, each one of us is going to be judged for what we have built on that foundation. Last week we talked about how some are going to find at the end of life they have built with nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. They, they know Jesus, but they did nothing with him. They didn't know, they, did, uh, they, they spent their life uh, doing worthless things and worldly things instead of doing things that are eternal. And at the end of their life, their entire works are going to go up in smoke. And there's going to be nothing left but that foundation of faith in their life. They're going to go to heaven, but they have nothing to show for their relationship with Jesus. And then there are others who are going to build on that foundation with uh, precious things, things that are eternal, things that will last. Uh, their motives, their, their gifts, their talents, their abilities, the things that God had given them, they used it for the glory of Christ. 
And at the end, there will be something that will last, something that will stand, and God will reward them on that day for their works. And so that's what Paul has talked about up until this point in chapter 3. And now you get to the end of the chapter, and Paul still has this image, this, this thought in mind of God's building, of God's people, the church. And he's going to give us some last words here in chapter 3 to go along with what he's already said that are very, very important. And so I want us to work our way through them. When we read them on the surface, it may be somewhat difficult to understand what is Paul talking about here, how does this all fit together, but hopefully as we walk through it this morning, we'll be able to understand it better. At least that is our goal. And so with that said, would you stand with me this morning in honor of our Lord and the reading of his word to us today, starting in verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ. That means you belong to Christ, and Christ is God's. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you help us to understand what it is you have spoken and revealed to us in your word. And the only way we can do that is by the help and the gift of the Holy Spirit in our life. So Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to see what we are to see this morning. Give us hearts that are open to receive the word of truth as it is revealed to us. May it find good soil upon which to rest and may it take root in our life and bear fruit in our life to the glory of our God. May Jesus Christ be exalted in this place and may all of us together be drawn closer to him this morning for we ask it in his name amen you may be seated so there are three things that i want us to, to look at this morning and this really doesn't matter to you but i'm just going to give you a heads up i've kind of changed my outline from where i started i've already preached this once and now i've kind of changed my outline same stuff but just a different outline to help it maybe flow a little better and stick a little better in our minds as we look at the text. The first thing that I want us to see this morning in verse 16 is Paul talks about this truth. There is a truth that needs to be understood and acknowledged by believers and by the church. And look at verse 16, you see what that truth is. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, Paul is asking a question here, but the question is a rhetorical question. In other words, Paul's intent here, his purpose here is not so much to inform, but to remind these believers of a truth that they should already be well acquainted with. And the truth is this, is that they... As followers of Jesus Christ, as those who have been saved by the grace of God, they now have become the temple of God 
himself. In other words, God now lives and dwells and abides in you who believe. Now, when you think about that glorious truth, it really is amazing. It is astounding to try to conceive and understand what Paul is talking about here. For the Jews, under the old covenant, they would have been acquainted with the temple, of course, and also with this belief that God's presence dwelt, could be found within the temple. Uh, Solomon is the one who built under the, uh, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, a temple uh, that was erected in Jerusalem to the Lord. And the Bible talks about how after Solomon had completed the construction of that temple, that he called the elders together, the priests together, and they were offering these sacrifices, and they carried the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the, the presence of God. They carried it into the temple, and they placed it in the most holy place, the place Ron, that was, what Ron was talking about a few moments ago, the Holy of Holies. They took the Ark of the Covenant and they placed it there within the Holy of Holies. And when they did, the Bible says that the, 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 the glory of God in the form of a cloud came and filled that temple. In fact, the presence of God was so thick within the temple itself that the priest could no longer minister there. They had, to, they had to get out and remove themselves because the presence of God was so real and so thick there in the temple in that moment as they were dedicating the temple to the Lord. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's an amazing picture that is given to us there in the Old Testament of God's presence there within the temple. But the, 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 the uh, temple and the relationship that God had with his people in the Old Testament was established under the Old Covenant, which means it was based on the law. God had said, okay, if you're going to relate to me, if you're going to be my people, if you're going to be right with me, then here's how you must live and this is what you must do. And the people were not able to live up to the law because the law never addressed the real issue with man, and that is the problem of man's sin. Because man's heart is wicked, he was unable to keep the laws of God and found himself repeatedly breaking God's laws and rebelling against God's laws. And so eventually what happened is, just as the glory of God had come and filled the temple, there's a picture also in the Old Testament of the glory of God departing from the temple. And it's a very tragic scene, watching God's presence and God's glory leave the temple. And that's where the people found themselves until Jesus comes. And when Christ comes into the world, he comes into the world to establish a new covenant, a covenant established with his blood. He comes into the world to do what man could not do, and that is to keep the law of God perfectly. And then he goes to the cross and he offers himself as a sacrifice and a substitute on our behalf, taking our sin on himself, dying in our place, suffering the punishment that we deserved. And then he was raised up from the dead so that through him we could be forgiven of our sin, so that we could be justified before God, declared righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ, reconciled unto God have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, with the hope and the promise of eternal life in Him. And after Jesus had finished His work on the cross, 
and it ascended back to heaven on the day of Pentecost, something incredible happens as the believers were gathered together in one place. The Bible talks about how the Spirit of God came upon them and filled them. In other words, the Spirit of God didn't just come into their midst. The Spirit of God came into their lives and filled them. And in that moment, they became indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And they became the temple of God, as it is with every person now who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We are the temple of God. God's Spirit now lives and abides in us. It's incredible. What a beautiful picture this is, that in the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people, but under the New Covenant, God has a people for His temple. You are the temple of God. Now, when Paul says you here, he's not talking you in the singular, it's you in the plural, which means he's talking to the church as a whole. It's not that some of us have the Holy Spirit and others of us do not. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. He lives in you and you have become the dwelling place of God. God lives within you. Isn't that incredible? The very presence of God lives and abides in us. For, for the past few weeks, perhaps even months now, the attention of many has been on this little town in Kentucky, uh, Wilmore, Kentucky. It's a place where there is a university, a college that's now become a university, Asbury University. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard about what's going on there. Some students had gathered together for a chapel service, and then at the end of the service, some students stayed behind. They continued to sing and to worship the Lord. Then other students came back in, and then the numbers grew, and then they wouldn't leave, and then others started to come, and it broke out into what has been labeled as a revival. Now, I don't know everything about what's happened in in Wilmore, Kentucky, or what's taking place on the campus of Asbury University, but I know that it's drawn the attention of so many to the extent that there are people all around the world now who have come to that little town in Kentucky to experience and to see for themselves what is happening there. And when they've interviewed some of those people who have been there, and ask them about their journey, their pilgrimage to Wilmore, Kentucky, and why did you come, and all these questions. Here's, here's what I have heard over and over and over again. We have come to this place because we want to experience for ourselves the very presence of God. Now, I get that. I, I understand why people think that going to a town in Kentucky would help them experience the presence of God because of the fact that Kentucky is so close to heaven. It makes sense to me. But if they think that you have to, listen, and, 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 and I don't want you to think for a moment that I'm against revival or anything like that. But if you think that you have to drive to a town in Kentucky to order, in order to experience the presence of God, then you have completely misunderstood the Word of God and what the Word of God teaches. Because I'm telling you that if you are a believer 
And we are a gathering of believers. The presence of God is just as much here as He is anywhere else in this world. Now, the issue is this. The issue is not how much of God do we have. The issue becomes how much of us does God have. And I understand today in our world this desire to know and to experience and to feel the very presence of God. I understand the desire to want to experience uh, something, um, uh, something new, a, a, a revival of, of sorts, something unlike anything that we've ever experienced or known in our lifetime. There is certainly a need for a fresh move of God among his people. But what has happened is that people have looked at what's taking place in, in, in Kentucky on this college campus, and they have tried to figure out, how can I bring that here where I am? Because I want that to happen where I am. And so what people have concluded is this, is that if we, if we perhaps sing the right stuff, maybe, it, maybe he will come. If we sing loud enough, if we show through emotions that we are sincere enough, then maybe God will move upon us. And I want you to know that that's not, that's not how you experience the presence and the power of God in your life. It's not through emotionalism, it's through repentance. You see, what has to happen in our lives and in the church for us to experience what is already true, and that is that the presence of God lives in us, is that we have to put ourselves in the same position as that Old Testament temple when it was being dedicated to the Lord. We have to empty ourselves of everything so that there's room for nothing but God alone. That means we have to die to sin, we have to die to ourselves, and we have to yield ourselves and surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ completely as the Lord of our life. And then and only then are we going to experience a true sense of God's presence and His power in His church. That's how revival comes. And Paul is simply reminding, this, reminding us of this truth that we should already be acquainted with and that we already should know is that we are the temple of God. And yes, we should desire to sense and to feel God's presence in our life. And when we come together, we should long for that. We should desire that. But the way that happens is when we die to ourselves so that only Christ can live in us. And so he says, don't you know, don't you understand that you are the temple of God? We are responsible, called to build a church to the glory of Christ. And that church is the dwelling place of God. And we should acknowledge that. And we should live like that. By yielding ourselves completely to Christ and to His Word and to His will so that His Spirit will fill us and His presence will dwell among us. And so there's a truth here that Paul wants us to acknowledge. But then along with that truth, Paul also reminds us of some threats of which we should be aware. And the threat is this. God is certainly uh, building His church, but the enemy is also at work trying to destroy, to tear down, what God is building. And so in verse 17, he issues a warning. He says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him 
For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So the warning here is that of a threat that would come against the church, an attack that would come against the church in an effort to destroy it, to destroy what God is building. Now, I really believe that when you look at what Paul is talking about in verse 17, he is talking about uh, an attack that comes from the outside of the church, primarily. Those who are opposed to the church, who hate the church, who are looking for an opportunity or a way to destroy the church, to tear the church down. And the reason for that is because of how God responds to these particular people who are trying to destroy what, he, what it is He is building. It says that God will destroy them. Well, we know that God's not going to destroy any believer. And so he has to be talking about someone who's on the outside, someone who is an unbeliever. But notice the wording that Paul uses here. He says, if anyone defiles the temple. Now, in the New King James, the word is defile. Your translation may have the word destroy. I don't know which translation you're reading from, but your translation may read destroy. New King James translates it defile because the destruction that is being talked about here, if you, if you have the word destroy in your Bible, the destruction that is talked about here is not a destruction that is complete. It is not an annihilation of the church because that's impossible. The church will come under attack. The scriptures are clear about this. The church is going to be persecuted. There are those who are going to wish to tear down the church. And they may attack the church, and they may wound the church, and they may hurt the church, but they will never be able to destroy the church because the church belongs to God. The church belongs to Jesus Christ, and there is no one and nothing that will ever destroy His church. However, those who attack the church and those who come against the church should be aware and warned that there is coming a day when God will destroy them. In other words, God is going to hold them accountable one day for their actions and for the attacks that they have brought against His people. And what Paul is reminding us of here is that the church is special to God. It is holy. It matters. It belongs to God. It is His possession. We are His own special people. And, and, and God, because of that, is going to protect us. He's going to take care of His church. And so nothing is ever going to destroy His church, even though we live in a world where the church is constantly going to come under attack. I'm thankful this morning. I was thinking also this week about what's happening in our world, all the changes that are taking place in our world. And we know that the world is changing rapidly. I started in ministry many, many years ago. And the world that I live in today is so different than the world that I found myself in when I first began in ministry, and it's changing rapidly by the moment to the extent that I honestly don't know what the next five, ten years are going to look, for, look like for the church in North America. I mean, it's changing that quickly. And there's a big part of me that feels like it's not going to look anything like it looks right now simply because of all of the opposition and all of those in our culture today who are determined to just be done with the church and be rid of the church. And I'm telling you, uh, that's coming. We know it's coming, but just be encouraged that no matter what they do, they will never destroy the church because the church belongs to Jesus Christ. Amen. And so there's a threat. 
from the outside that we should be aware of. But then also, Paul reminds us that there are threats that come from within as well. And in verse 18, I think that's what he's talking about. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Now, Paul has played around with this, and he has mentioned this several times already in the letter. He's gone back and forth uh, and con- con- comparing the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world, with the wisdom of God. And he does it again here in the context of building the church. And I think what Paul is doing is he's, he's letting us know that there is a, a very real and present threat of being deceived into thinking that the wisdom of this age is greater than the wisdom of God revealed in Christ and in Scripture. And that the church would begin to go along with the wisdom of this age and move itself away from the wisdom that has been revealed in the Word of God. See, if you read the the story of the church in the New Testament, it is very clear that it did not take Satan long to realize that the best way, perhaps, to hurt the church, to hinder the church, to render the church ineffective in this world is not to attack it from without. Because every every time the church was attacked from without, all it did was explode. I mean, it just took off. Satan realized that perhaps the best way to render the church ineffective is to attack her from within. And I think Paul is talking about that. I think in verse 18, he's talking about this attack that comes from within. And it happens in a very subtle way. And it happens when men begin to move away from the wisdom of God revealed in Scripture. And they begin to give themselves to the wisdom of this age. And I want to tell you something. This is is happening today in our world. It's not the first time that we've had to deal with issues like this. But certainly issues like this one are becoming more and more prominent of people departing from Scripture and beginning to to, uh, promote and preach the wisdom of this age in churches. This is not a denominational thing, by the way. It's not just one denomination that is dealing with this. This is across all denominations. The church as a whole right now is under attack from within. And there are some things that are coming out of pulpits, things that preachers are saying today that absolutely blow my mind. Men that you once believed were grounded in truth are now saying things and you're thinking, what in the world are you talking about? What what are you doing? Let me just give you a couple of examples. I've heard one pastor say, Uh, not long ago to his congregation if anybody's ever said to you is anybody if anybody's ever said to you the bible says i want to apologize to you for them i want to apologize for that if anybody's ever said the bible says i am deeply deeply sorry about that now i want to tell you i i am sorry for the way some people have used the bible at times i am sorry for the way some people who call themselves Christians, have presented the Scriptures at times. But I am not sorry for anyone 
who in love tries to share the truth of God's Word with another. Because this, this is the Word of God. And this tells us what is right and what is true and what is real in this world. And people in the world need to hear, not the wisdom of this age, but they need to hear the wisdom that comes from God so that they might believe it and they might live. I've also heard recently a pastor who stood before his congregation and said that, that the, the next generation, the generation that is coming up, does not need to tether its faith to the Bible, but rather needs to tether its faith only to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, there are some people, and this guy's a smart guy, and there's some people that may hear a statement like that, and they may think, you know what, that, that's brilliant. That sounds very, very wise there. And I want you to understand that I think I know what he's trying to do. We all, as churches, as Christians, as ministers today, find ourselves in a world that's unlike anything that we've ever known. And we're all trying to figure out our way here. And how do we minister to people in this present age where everything has shifted and everything has changed and, 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 and there's so many things that people believe and that people are doing now that just are, are things that you never thought about decades ago but now it's here and now we're dealing with it and we're trying to figure it all out and so i understand trying to reach the next generation trying to appeal to the next generation but here is the danger point and i believe that the faith is built on jesus christ the son of god crucified and raised from the dead here is my point of contention and this is where i issue a warning that if you begin to cast doubt in the next generation or any generation about the reliability or the truthfulness of God's Word, then what do they have to look to for truth? I mean, do we not understand that anything that we know and anything that we believe about Jesus has been revealed to us from the Word of God? I mean, how would we ever understand why Jesus came into the world if it weren't for the Word of God? How would we ever understand our need for a Savior if it weren't for the Word of God? How would we know who that Savior was when He showed up if it weren't for the Word of God? How would we understand what He did for us on the cross if it weren't for the Word of God? How would we even know about the resurrection today if it weren't for the Word of God? And how would we know as followers of Jesus how we're supposed to live in this world if it weren't for the Word of God? I've said it before, and I will say it again, Jesus Christ and His Word are inseparable. They are linked together. And so any faith that you have in Jesus has to come from the Word of God. And it's a dangerous thing to start telling any generation that the Word of God is unnecessary, that it's unreliable, or that it's foolishness. And the argument is, well, people today aren't going to believe the Bible. And people today look at the Bible and they think that it's foolishness. 
Well, yes, they do. And Paul told us that they would. And why is that? It's because they're lost. It's because they're in darkness. They are bound in their sin. Satan has closed their eyes to the truth of God. And the only way their eyes are ever going to be open, hear me, the only way their eyes are ever going to be open is not if some preacher comes up with a new creative way to present the gospel. The only way their eyes are going to be open is if the Holy Spirit of God takes the true gospel and opens those eyes. Amen. Salvation does not come by men. It comes from God. And even though the present age may look at the Word of God and say it is foolishness to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and it is the power of God. It's all we've got, folks. This is all we have is the Word of God. And I think Paul is reminding the church of that. You are the temple of God, the dwelling place of God in this world. And yes, the world hates you and the world's attacking you from without, but be careful of the subtle deceptions from within to give yourself over to the world and to the culture and compromise the truth of Scripture. Man, we need to hear this today. And so there is this threat that we need to be aware of. And then finally, he talks about here in this passage, a treasure that is to be appreciated. And the treasure itself may surprise you, but, but look at what he says. He says in verse 21, Therefore, let no one boast in men. Now, I want you to think about why he's saying that. Think about everything that he just said. Now, think about what he's saying here. And think about what the problem was within this church. Their problem was that they loved to elevate men. They loved to elevate their spiritual teachers. They put them on these pedestals, and they claimed themselves to be followers of these men. And Paul here in this passage has given warning to spiritual leaders about these dangers and these deceptions that are out there so that they don't get caught up in these kind of things, but they remain true and faithful to Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church, that they build upon that foundation with the Word of God. And now he gets to verse 21 and says, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ is God's. Now, Verse 23 is the thing that he wants them to understand. Listen, you don't belong to anybody but Jesus. And everything that you have in your life that is good, it's because of him. It's because of what Jesus has done for you. You belong to God. And because you belong to God, listen, because you belong to Christ, you have been given all of these treasures for which you ought to be thankful and he gives us a listing here of what those treasures are. He talks about how they have been given the world. When he talks about the world, he's talking about the fact that, that this world that we live in right now, it's broken, it's fallen, it's corrupt, it's perishing, but God is going to restore it one day. He's going to redeem it for himself, and God is going to create for us a new heavens and a new earth, and in that new heavens and new earth, we're going to reign with him forevermore. And so you have been given the world. You may not look like you've got much now, but God's given you the world through Jesus Christ. And he's also given you life. Aren't you thankful that Christ gave you life? 
I mean, we were, once, we were once just a bunch of dead people walking around, but now we're alive. We're alive in Jesus Christ. And the life that He has given is new life, brand new life. We are new people, new creation because of what Jesus has done for us. We have abundant life, a life that is full now. I've said before that if I have a thousand lives to live, I'd want to live every one of them for Jesus because living for Christ is so much better than living for this world or living for myself. An eternal life. He's given us eternal life. You've been given life in Christ. Life abundant. Life to the full. He says also, you've been given death. And what he means by that is you've been given power over death. You've been given victory over death. You don't even have to be afraid of death anymore because of Jesus Christ. Death, is, death, death for you is not the end if you're a Christian. It's merely a passageway into the very presence of God Himself where you see Him with your with your own eyes, face to face, when you worship at his feet forevermore. You enter into that place that he has prepared for you. You don't even have to fear death anymore. He says things present he has given you, the blessings and the things that we are, uh, are privileged to enjoy every single day. Isn't God good? Isn't his faithfulness wonderful? His goodness Today's a gift from God given to you. All of the opportunities of the day, all the things that God has put before you today, the, these are gifts to you from the Lord. And He's given you things to come. He's given you a future. This is not all that there is. There's more waiting for us on the other side of this life. He goes through this list of treasures here that God has given to us as followers of Jesus Christ. But at the beginning of this list, and this is why I saved it for last, because it ties into what he's saying here. At the beginning of this list, he says, and God has given you Paul, Apollos, Cephas as well. He's talking about these spiritual leaders that they had aligned themselves behind. And here's what he's saying to them. He's saying to them, listen, you don't belong to them. You belong to Christ. You're not theirs. They are yours. These men are nothing but gifts that God has given to you to help you on your spiritual journey, to help you grow and mature in Christ, to teach you the truth of His Word, that you may grow up in Him. And so any spiritual leader in the church that God has placed in a church. He is there for the good and for the benefit of the people, but He is put there as a gift from God to that congregation. But He is only as good to that church as He is faithful to the Word of God. And that's why He says, don't boast in men. Don't let your loyalty and allegiance be to men. You let your loyalty and allegiance be to God and to the Word of God. And let me tell you why I think this is important. is because the people that I'm talking about pastor that I referenced just a few moments ago has this huge following in the world today. And because of who he is and because of, 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 of his place and position uh, within the, the church world and even within his own congregation, whatever comes out of his mouth, whatever he says, people are going to say, you know, that, that must be the truth. Well, we better listen to that. See, that's the danger. We, we, we better live. Well, if he said it, it's got to be right. It should be right, but it's not always right. See, just because a man says it doesn't mean it's right. 
not if it doesn't come from this book. It's truth. This is the authority. This is what we're listening to. This is what we're looking to. The Bereans in the, in the New Testament were commended because they didn't just listen to people and say, oh, well, I believe that now. They searched the Scriptures for themselves to see what was right, what was true. And they were commended for that. So you don't just need pastors who are committed to the Word. We need to be a people who are committed to the Word of God. So we know what God's Word teaches. We know what it says because that's the only way you're going to be able to navigate these dangerous days in which we are living on planet Earth. Amen? Amen. And so, that's the end of chapter 3. Paul says, you are God's temple. God lives and dwells in you. So humble yourselves before the Lord. and Die to your sin and die to self so that the Spirit of God may dwell in you fully. And we should desire to be that kind of church. Amen? I mean, we, we should be a people who are so full of the Holy Spirit because we are so committed to Christ that when people from the outside walk in here, it doesn't take them long to figure out, I don't know what it is, but there is something different about this place. And it is the Spirit of God who lives in us and is among us. We've got to be careful about the dangers that are out there. And we need to hold to the Word of God and be faithful and true to it. So that we can be the church that God has called us to be in these last days in which we live. If you were encouraged by today's sermon, leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church Martin, visit fbcmartin.org.